The Institute for Life Insurance in New York City recently conducted a survey where they asked the question, what is your main goal in life? Three percent of those asked answered to make a lot of money. At least they were honest. Four percent said to try to find some meaningful career or occupation. Twelve percent answered to develop fully as a creative, liberated human being. And eighty. 80% answered that their most important goal in life was to have a happy family life. 80%. Now, when you're in the work that Mr. Bruder and I are in, you're very, very happy to see those kind of statistics, and you're pleased to hear that in this changing day when our foundation seemed to be rattling, 80% of the people still believe in the sanctity of marriage and the importance of a happy family life. Yet I must be honest with you, when I read the results of that particular survey, I had questions. Well, I'm not questioning the integrity of those who were the canvassers, but I do have questions with those 80% who answered as they did. I wonder how many of those people individually would be able to recognize a happy family when they saw one. I wonder how many of them actually would know what would go in to constituting happy family life or a good marriage. And I really wonder how many of them not only desired but actually had the dedication, the discipline, and the courage to do what is necessary to have a good marriage or a happy family life. I ask these questions, you know, because this is part of our business, part of our work, part of our love. And when I see so many people suffering through the dilemmas of divorce, where what is it? Uh, statistics differ. Two out of or three out of every five marriages don't make it, where we're to the place where there are more people getting divorced each year than married, where there are people who are unhappily married, and it shows in so many different ways. And when so many young people tell you in confidence that they can't wait to get away from home, so you begin to wonder, I open my heart to you today because I do have many questions, many questions about what's happening to our families, what's happening in the context of marriage. So with these questions, together with what I hope is good biblical foundation, together with 19 years of practical experience as a marriage and family counselor, I bring to you today six realities that I would like you to think about very, very seriously. I hope that you'll take the bulletin, maybe write these down. I want you as 
mates and his families to, to think about these during the coming days. I've battled them out on the anvil, as I said, of experience and of real questioning and thinking and trying to be of help. This is a day when it's so easy to become sentimental and of actually no value. I hope in Bakerstown Church we're trying to be part of, of the solution rather than part of the question. The first reality that I think people must realistically realize if they're ever going to come to what is called a happy marriage or a happy family life is this, reality number one. There is no such thing as an ideal perfect marriage or family. That animal just does not exist. To be able to have perfection, you can't have imperfection, and we are imperfect people, all of us. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and you just cannot have perfection from imperfection. Well, if you had a perfect man who married a perfect wife, theoretically they would have perfect children, and that would be the perfect family. But that family doesn't exist, at least it doesn't exist in Bakerstown Church, and I'm very grateful for it. Can you imagine how the rest of us would react if there was one family in our community and in our church that would be perfect? Ayah! <laughs> My heart would bleed for that family. Oh, the rest of us wouldn't bother coming to church. We would be intimidated by their presence. We would feel guilty. And human nature being as it is, we would all be sitting waiting, just watching and hoping they would trip and fall. <laughs> there is no such thing as the ideal or perfect marriage or family. Hopefully, this does not mean that we are to have mediocrity, that we're not to try to have good families and good marriages. Oh, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the perfect does not exist. We try for it, but it does not exist. You don't have it, and you never will have it. Neither will I. Now, just to try to prove the point, I begin to tread on some dangerous ground, which is hard for some sentimentalists and traditionalists. But look at Jesus, the perfect individual. Nobody has ever lived like him nor ever will again. The only individual who is perfect. But even he was not a part of a perfect family. And we don't use, you know, Jesus' home life as a text for Mother's Day and Family Sunday. You ever realize that? Now, because I think Jesus' home life was something less than desirable, if you want to be realistic about the situation, and we must. You read the confrontations that he had with brother, sister, mother. One of the 5,623 questions that I have just on the Gospels alone has to deal with those closing verses of the 12th chapter of Matthew. Remember where Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters came to hear him speak, and and the disciples said, your mother and your, your family is here. And he said to them, what I think, we think is beautiful, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? He who does my will is 
my mother and my brothers and sisters. That sounds beautiful, but you know, how would you have felt if you had been Jesus' mother and heard that? Or one of his brothers or one of his sisters? I'm not judging our good Lord, but sometimes I think the gentleness and kindness which is of our Lord was not in that particular sentence or that particular statement. Now, I don't think the family was quite what you would want. I think they thought Jesus was a little touched in the head. And remember when he died from the cross in his last words, he had to commit the care of his own loving mother to John, who was not a blood brother, but a spiritual brother. The blood brothers weren't even there. You don't call that family stick to not easy to accept, but I think the sooner we accept it, that we don't have an ideal family life and never will, then maybe we can start to proceed to have a good marriage or a good family life. Reality number two, good marriages and happy families just don't happen. They don't come from nowhere. They are not accidents. They are achievements. They are not something to wonder at in amazement. They are something to work at. Now, a good marriage and a good family takes a tremendous amount of work. And I like that definition of marriage. Just not two people who are together in love, but two people who are together in love and who are willing to work together to make a miniature kingdom of God here on earth. It's very interesting when you see what the New Testament has to say about marriage and families. And what, please, may I warn you, when you begin to look at the passages, especially those that are written by Paul or are attributed to his pen, please, when you study them, do so from a perspective of what was happening back at the time when they were being written, and please look at them chronologically. Paul didn't write all of his letters, you know, in the same week. No, it was over a period of time, and you find his opinions and ideas changing, and if you lose that chronology, you lose what God, I think, is trying to tell us through his writings. Now, we think one of the first things that he had to write, we find in 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter. Write that down, look it up if you want when you go home. And you will find there that Paul's idea of marriage is that it's a good thing, but don't enter into it. Yes. Smart man, he's my hero. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only kidding, only kidding. <laughs> don't enter into it. Now, the reason, you see that he said that was because of the climate and the condition of that time. That was one of his first writings in 1 Corinthians, we believe. And at that time, he thought the kingdom of God was coming tomorrow, that Jesus was returning, if not in a few days, in a couple of weeks. And what he was trying to say is, there's much that has to be done to get ready for the second coming of Christ. And if you're married, you're not going to have the time to get ready for Christ and work at your family. He's against marriage in 1 Corinthians, not because he's against the institution. Oh, no. He's against it because it takes work and it takes time. And if you don't have the time to do the work, maybe it's better if you don't get married. 
That's what he was trying to say. He's trying to point up that you can't have marriage and you can't have family unless you have the discipline and the dedication to work at it. It takes time. 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 Just as all of you people are some of you so successful at your work and your time, you know the principle which got you that success. You've been willing to put your body and heart into an endeavor. And you've proven results. If you're going to have a happy home, you've got to put the equal amount of time and heart into building a successful marriage or home. It needs cooperation. Cooperation. All of us know we can't produce as much by ourselves as when we are supported and undergirded and have the cooperation of our fellow workers. It's the same thing in the household. You can't do it without the cooperation of every member. And you can't have it without help. Help from the outside. Now, a lot of people don't like to think that. They're too proud and they don't call for help. And I really believe from experience that the reason so many of our marriages don't make it is because one, and that's all it takes, because one or both mates refuse to get help from outside. And above all, they refuse to get help from the Lord. And that's the third reality I want you to consider, that if you are a Christian, your marriage and your family is in the Lord. In the Lord. And I borrow a phrase which you heard read out of Paul's letter to the Colossians concerning marriage. See, poor Paul, he gets such a bum rap. He used a dangerous loaded word which people today interested in equality do not like. He tries to use the word subject or submissive. And so many people read that at the beginning of Paul's advice that they forget the equally important words at the end of the advice. And, advice. and he says that we are in the Lord. Now what does that mean? To me, it means several things. It means that we must realize that our marriage, our family, has been called by God. Now, I don't want to take away any of the human elements that has gone into your marriage or you, into your family. I believe, yes, we're all very much involved in this, but please, I believe also that they have been called by God. And that if one person in the marriage, either husband or wife, believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that marriage is in the Lord and has been called and destined, yes, to 
be of God's own calling. You see, this is beautiful in the infant baptism when we baptize in the covenant. I know many people haven't caught this, so many of you are interested in looking at those, those beautiful little creations. You don't hear a word we say when we're baptizing the children. But we say, these children belong with us who believe to the household of faith. And to me, that's the beautiful for part of the covenant relationship, that little child who's not even conscious he or she is here, is not even aware of, of your and my presence, nor the presence of the Spirit of God, that child has been called and set apart and is baptized into the union of our togetherness. That God is interested in us even before we are interested in responding or capable of responding to him. That's beautiful. We don't talk, you see, enough about this, but your marriage, your family is in the Lord. And that means a tremendous thing when you realize that God has called you together. That God is uniting you. It means that also that we are, we, we are together in a bond and a unity that is greater than ourselves. In our homes and in our families, you see, we don't have to compete with each other. We don't have to earn our right. We're there by God's calling. God has put us in the Lord. It means that we are bound together by that one lordship, that one faith, that one baptism. And therefore, though we may differ on who's going to drive the car and how long the hair and, and what the dress is like, we are together in the important things of love and honesty and truthfulness. It means more than that. It means that in the Lord, God's power is working in our marriage and in our families, even when we question it the most. That God's healing power is at work right now in your marriage and in your families. See, that's what Jesus did when he went around the world, around the communities. He healed. He healed. People didn't know how and why. The biggest question still is, how did Jesus heal? I don't know, but like the blind man, all I know is that once I was blind, but now I can see. He healed. And God's healing power is at work in marriages and families, and we forget that. We don't have too much to do about that. God is healing when we are in the Lord and we are in the Lord not so much by our own choosing. We respond, yes, to the fact that he first chose us and united us in the Lord. That's reality number three. Your marriage, your family is in the Lord. Reality number four. Every person has a part in that family. Everyone. Everyone. Sometimes I think subconsciously we, we try to dismiss a member or two here or there. You can't do that. 
Every member is a part of that family, and we better realize that. And what happens to one affects everybody else, whether it be for the good or for the not so good. That's a reality. Again, we turn to the other passages which Paul has. Remember, I've already referred to 1 Corinthians 7. The other two are Ephesians 5, and then the one we read here today, Colossians 3. Now, that is Colossians and Ephesians. Boy, they, they, they've raised a real turmoil and discussion and disagreement amongst Christians. And when Paul uses that word, wives be subject, or women be submissive, I have to agree with you. It's difficult to understand. All I ask is before you decide definitely how you think God intends it for you to comprehend, hear me out and please, please understand the context in which Paul is writing. You have to understand something about marriage and families in the first century. And at that time, ladies and gentlemen, when you do a little historical back homework, you will find that marriage at that time was not in sad shape. It was in horrible shape. Divorce was not an occasion. It was an epidemic. Women had absolutely no status whatsoever in Jewish, in Greek, or in Roman homes. In the Hebrew families, every bit of power was in the man. The woman was not even a person, she was a thing. Every morning a Hebrew man thanked himself for at least two things. One, he was not a Gentile, and secondly, he was not a woman. Yes, that's right. In those particular days, all a man had to do to get a divorce was to go to a rabbi, who in turn would write out a bill of divorcement, and then the man would take that and hand it to the woman in the presence of two witnesses, and then she was gone. That was it. That's all he had to do. They based this idea upon the teaching which can be found in Deuteronomy, the 24th chapter. And it says in there that a man can divorce a woman for any indecency that he finds in her. And of course, the whole thing hinged upon that word indecency, and no two rabbis really interpreted that word the same. There were some rabbis who accepted the word indecency to mean adultery and only adultery. That alone was the ground for divorce. But there were others that said no indecency could mean even if she put too much salt in the potatoes, or whether she badmouthed his parents. Even if she combed her hair the wrong way, that was, that was enough evidence for indecency which would enable uh, divorce. So consequently, what was happening back at that time, the women weren't so dumb then. They just decided they weren't going to marry. And marriage, the institution, was in real, real trouble back in the first century. In the Roman world, it wasn't any different. In fact, it was worse than in the Jewish world. Demosthenes said that a man had his prostitutes for pleasure, his concubines for cohabitation, and his wife to raise the children. And Socrates, in all of his wisdom, says, is there anyone to whom you entrust more but speak less than to your wife?
They were there only to take care of the household and to raise the children. And Papa could do anything he wanted. And in the Roman world, it was even worse yet. Jerome, the early church fathers, tells us about a woman who was the 21st wife to her 23rd husband. Yes, these are all historical facts. There, a woman was expected not to be seen, not to be heard, but just to be there whenever the man wanted her. And it was into this kind of a world that Paul was writing, and what he was trying to say was he was not trying to put down women. He was trying to bring women up, and he was trying to tell men that they were not to use women as things, but they were to love them. Love your wife as Christ loves the church. Love your mate as much as you love yourself. Everybody has a part, you see, an equally important part. And please remember that when Paul is writing, please don't give these pieces of advice job descriptions. That's what some literalists want to do. And, and you know, when you take that, as we read here today, what, what they're trying to say, wives, your only responsibility or job description is to be subject unto your husband. You don't have to love him, just be subject. If you want to make this a literal translation, husbands, all you have to do is, is love your wives. Don't be subject unto them. Or uh, children, obey your parents. Parents, you don't have to obey anybody, but children, you obey your parents. Parents, provoke not your children. If you want to take that literally, you mean it, it means that it's okay for children to provoke their parents, but parents can't provoke their children. No, that's not what he's saying. He's trying to say men, women, boys and girls. Be subject one unto another, as is fitting in the Lord. Love one another. Obey each other and provoke not each other. That's what he's trying to say. All of us, all of us have a part. And it's not just a partial part with just a little job description. It's a big job description. All of us are to do all of these things. And as so many families know, all it takes is for one member to feel not a part of that family union, or only one member not to fulfill the total part. It makes no reason why. Maybe sometimes it's because of sickness. Many times it's because of sin. But if just one person does not fulfill his total or her total responsibility, everybody in the family, everybody in the family suffers. Reality four. Everybody is a part. And five, the only person that you have a right and the power to change in your family is yourself. The only person you have the right or the power to change in your family is yourself. Yep. 
In my own opinion, I can be wrong, but in my own opinion, there is only one prayer that is legitimate for you to pray in your family. And it is not concerning the other person, though he or she may need changing. God alone knows there's a lot of people that need to be changed. But it's not your right nor your power to change them. The only legitimate prayer I believe that you can ask is this, Lord, change this family and begin with me. Lord, change this family and begin with me. The sixth reality, nothing's going to happen in your family to change it or in your marriage to change it unless you have the courage to do it. You can't wait upon your feelings. You can't wait until the time of trouble comes. You have to move on your intuition and your belief. And you've got to do it. You can't wait for somebody else. That's it. Talk about them. Think about them. Talk about them going home from church around the table today. If you have any responses, I would like to hear from them. And as I look over this great congregation today, and knowing that there are many families worshiping by radio at home or in their automobile, if you're sitting beside a member of your family, someone whom you love, please just reach over now and, and, and take hands. Please. Please. Never be afraid of your emotions. It's a beautiful day. Some of you came to church today as happy families. And some of you came today upset with each other, disturbed, something going on in your family life. As you touch that person beside you, no matter what your feelings are this moment, remember, they belong to you, and you belong to them. You're in the Lord. Remember, it takes work. Remember, you can change only one person. That's yourself.